Hey, everybody, it is Rajiv. Now, before we start the show, I wanted to invite you to join our email list at 99pages.club. So each month, I send out two emails. No spam, I promise. One is a summary of the episodes we've released on the podcast in the past month, but the second is a what I'm reading now list. You know, I get asked for book recommendations all the time, so I will send out a monthly summary of stimulating nonfiction reads worthy of your time. I promise there'll be gems in there. That's 99pages.club to join our email list. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 99 Pages Podcast. I'm your host, Rajiv Srinivasan. Today, we're speaking with Miss Stephanie Kelton, author of the book, The Deficit Myth, an incredibly important read when it comes to understanding modern monetary theory. With terms like inflation, interest rates, or the national debt being thrown around, Kelton breaks down the complicated nature of monetary policy for the common voter. It's an inspiring read, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kelton. So let's break it down to the bare, like 101 uh, mm-hmm. of the thesis of your book. And I think maybe a good place to start is to actually understand what exactly is modern monetary theory and how do we contrast that with the gold standard? I think we kind of throw these terms out. Maybe uh, you could help us just for the average citizen. Like, what do these two terms mean? Well, so if you're on a gold standard, then, you you know, it's it's a particular monetary system. It's a a way to arrange your currency where the government says, look, uh, I pledge to convert my currency into gold at a fixed price. You bring me my currency, I give you that many ounces of gold. You bring me that many ounces of gold, I give you that many units of my currency. Fixed, right? It's, It's a commitment. And what I'm saying to you is that I am promising to convert my currency into something that I can run out of. My gold is finite, something I could run out of. So I have to operate my budget very differently when I'm making that pledge to convert my currency into something I can run out of versus the kind of monetary system that we have in the U.S. today or that Britain has today or that Japan or Australia or Canada or so many other countries have. So, um, you know, the the nature of the monetary system really matters and you have degrees of freedom additional policy space. You can do more as a government. You have more freedom to operate your budget in ways that are not like a household. When you're on a gold standard, you have to be sort of miserly, right? You have to be very careful about how much of your currency you put out there because every unit you put out there is potentially convertible into gold and you only have so much of it. So, you know, that's the the fundamental difference is that one of them makes you behave a whole lot more like a household and the other one allows you to operate your budget like a big, beefy, strong currency issuer that knows that it can never run out of money. You know, that's a wonderful transition to, I think, one of the core thesis of your book is like the household and the government are two very different ways of managing a balance sheet, if you will. And one interesting uh, dichotomy you propose is this thesis that we think that the government was operate in a TABS, T-A-B-S framework, which is first we're gonna tax and then we're gonna borrow and spend. Like our spending and borrow is a function of our ability to tax. But you actually offer a STAB thesis, which is first actually, we gotta spend. And then we can tax and, and, and borrow later. Spending is actually the first element. Can you explain what, what that means and why it's different? Mm-hmm. 
so you're right. I, and I say that, you know, this is a mnemonic. It's just my way of imagining some helpful way for people to picture the way we've been taught to think of the government's finances. And so when I when you say the TABS model, that's the model I'm trying to debunk, right? And TABS, I put it in parentheses, T-A-B. The T-A-B is taxing and borrowing. And so what Margaret Thatcher said, and I quote her in the book because she said it so plainly. She said, the government has no money of its own. There is only taxpayer money. There is only the money that you, the taxpayer, earns. We can take some of that. And there is your savings. And we can borrow some of that. So we can tax you or we can borrow from you. And after we do those things, we have money. And once we have money, we can spend. So spending comes last. You have to arrange your finances first. Then you are in a position to spend. And what I argue in the book and the whole, you know, much of the point of MMT is to get the sequencing right, to show people how government finance actually works. How do government budgets really work? How does the government really spend? By logic, right, the government cannot tax you and collect dollars or borrow dollars from you until they have first made the dollars available because you can't create the dollars. They can't come from you. They can only come from government as the issuer of the currency. So, you know, obviously the government can't come to you and demand that you pay dollars in taxes until they have made those dollars available to you. They can't borrow your dollars until you have some dollars. So the spending has to come first. The currency issuer has to first make its currency available by spending or lending it into existence before the rest of us can have it and use it to pay taxes or borrow. So it's just, you know, it sounds like a subtle thing, just going from tabs to stab where spend comes first and taxing and borrow comes later. But it's extremely important, right, it, in terms of understanding how it all works. And when you hear politicians, if they're talking about wanting to do big, bold infrastructure or climate or healthcare or education, whatever they want to spend money on, you know that the big question they always get, they're confronted with from some journalist or they're on TV and they say, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? What is that question? That question is asking who's going to pick up the tab. And that's why I like the tabs thing, right? Who's going to pick up the tab? Where is the money going to come from? And what I'm trying to do is say, it's not a gold standard. You don't have to go find the money. You know, we're not digging in a, digging a <laughs> hole in the ground to do this anymore, right? It's a different monetary system and it works differently. And we got to get the sequencing right so that we can get the thinking right, so that we can get the policy right. So if we are talking about inflation then as the metric of what government services cost. In my head, I think, well, inflation is kind of a, it's a, it's a ratio, right? There's a numerator and a denominator. And in my head, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, I'm obviously not an expert here, but when I think of inflation, uh, we're talking about the, the things costing more money, right? And we're sort of divide. and I'm kind of curious what this ratio is. Like the change in the supply of dollars is obviously one element of it, but what's the, I guess, the, and that might be the denominator, what's the numerator? What is the value that's actually that we're actually dividing amongst more dollars? Okay, so I think we should, we should set that aside. And okay, please, not, yeah. Tell not think in terms of the money supply, because I think this is part of the problem. 
that you and I were both, I'll bet you we were both trained to think exactly the way that you just said. Somehow inflation has to do with the supply of money. And if the supply of money goes up, then inflation somehow goes up because more supply means higher higher inflation somehow, right? And this, we can talk about where that comes from and Milton Friedman and the quantity theory of money and all this kind of stuff. Let's put that aside. <laughs> there is not a person on earth anywhere that you could sit down and talk to who could write down for you a model of inflation, a, a model that works to help you forecast, understand, explain inflation at all moments in time. We don't have it. It doesn't exist. So inflation is a complex dynamic phenomenon that is meant to um, have us think about, you know, a continuous increase in the price level. So what is that? You can you point to the price level? Can I I can't point to the price level. It's not I can't see the price level. We try to get a sense, right? What is the price level? So we construct these things called price indices. And people have probably heard things like the CPI or, you know, um, this is not hot stuff we think about on a daily basis, most of us, but there are these indices, and this is how we try to measure inflation. So, you know, very um serious wonky people sit around and build price indices and they decide, you know, we want to try to understand what's happening to prices so that we get a sense of what the average consumer is facing month over month, year over year. What is the, what is the impact on the consumer budget as prices change? So we, we construct an index and we say, well, how does the average person spend their income? Well, they spend a good bit of it on healthcare. They spend a good bit of it on housing. They spend a fair bit on education and transportation and energy. We decide, you know, food, entertainment, clothing. We build that basket to reflect the consumption patterns of the average consumer. The more important any one of those items is, healthcare, housing, transportation, education, the greater weight we give it in the basket. And then we track over time. What's happening to the prices of these things? We know some things become more expensive over time and other things become less expensive. So it's about what happens on balance to the prices of the things that are in that basket. And then we say, is it becoming more expensive to buy that basket of goods over time? And if the basket is getting more and more expensive over time and your wages aren't keeping up, then in real terms, you're falling behind. But if the basket is getting more expensive and your wages are climbing, you know, commensurate with that, then you say, well, you're not falling behind, right? So inflation's tough. It's tricky. You can have inflationary pressure because, you know, uh, rental, you know, costs a lot more for housing, costs a lot more for healthcare. An oil price shock drives energy costs way up. So Inflation is tricky, and most of it is probably down to a struggle over income shares. It's about, you know, how much goes to labor versus capital and that struggle to have pricing power to be able to protect your profits and um, and move prices higher versus workers' ability to move prices in wages uh, in their direction. And if inflation by itself is is a, an incredibly complicated thing to talk about and discuss, then let's put it aside. Let's focus on what actually matters at the kitchen table. And so maybe we could actually make this more tangible. Like let's take a like let's take an issue uh, specifically 
uh, let's say education, for example, there's a push. Let's just generally say there's a push that uh, we want to have uh, more affordable higher education in this country, and it's expensive. It's going to cost the government on paper what looks like a lot of money. So as a po- – let's say you were advising a policymaker, which by the way you did for many years of your life and continue to do. Um, how do you spell out the actual cost or how do you spell out the consequences to a politician and say like, look, I get it. On paper, this money looks like a big number to pay for education, but you're thinking it in the incorrect way. I need you to put that dollar amount aside. How do you get the what, – what's the sales pitch if you will? Well, I mean, I, I think you have to lead with your values. If you if you begin by starting with numbers, you're going to end up in a bad place because everyone will pick apart your numbers. Your your cost estimates will be off. Your revenue estimates will be off. Everything will be unrealistic, and everyone will start fighting over you know how um, realistic your you know estimated costs are uh, and so forth. So, if you believe, as I do that um, education is a public good and that we ought to have, uh, people ought to have the ability to go to public colleges and universities all across the country tuition free. Then the question is, how do you resource that, right? How do you deliver on that? Because the money is the easiest part. That's the point, you know, that I'm trying to emphasize in the book is that we spend so much of our time bogged down with how will you pay for it? What will it cost? Where will the revenue come from? We're asking mostly all of the wrong questions and not paying attention to the questions that are the real challenges, which I just suggested is how do you resource it? If I promise that every person in this country who wants a a college education can go to a public college or university tuition free and get a four-year degree, how do we resource it? In other words, do I have the faculty? Are there enough seats in classrooms? Are there places for people to park? Are there dorms? Are there, you know, are there labs? Are there um, graduate teaching assistants? Are there light? Is does a library have the capacity? Like that's the real resource capacity. And to make good on that promise, you've got to be able to deliver what you're promising, which is the actual education, the experience in the classroom, and with the faculty and so forth. The money's the easiest part. And that's the part that always hangs us up. So it really is about shifting the debate in onto an entirely different terrain where, you know, if you could just imagine, you know, uh, it's almost like trying to imagine a game board where you have pieces, right? And you have to move the pieces around to achieve where it is you're trying to go. And if, if you don't have enough pieces, you can't get there, right? You need the pieces. And so part of the strategy might involve training and hiring uh, enough faculty and enough additional, you know, administrators or whatever you need, you know, to get the capacity in place to have free public college. Well said. So we got some questions coming in from our viewers. If it's okay, I'd love to turn sure. to them. So we have uh, and, and uh, Shankar Venkatraman and Chelsea. Uh, I would love Chelsea Jacobs. I'd love to combine your question to, to one because I think they're they're uh, related. Uh, Shankar asks. Uh, so why isn't the government printing money at will if inflation isn't going to be directly impacted? Like, what is that? I guess the backstop. And I think you know to to that point, you know. We'd like to know what is stopping politicians from getting this sequencing right, you know, the, the, the stab versus tabs model. And I feel like these questions are related in their just very sort of like pro- policy process 
implications. Uh, could, could you speak to those if, if that's okay? Sure. Look, I think that if we if we're paying attention to what Congress has done for the last year, what is today? Where it's March, right? Year, a year since COVID really hit the U.S. That we have been doing this for one year. And what has Congress done? Okay, they have spun out bill after bill after bill, spending spending legislation. Right? Congress has committed trillions and trillions of dollars. They got together, they voted for a spending package, they authorized the spending, boom, the dollars go out. There was no tax increase. If you're thinking of the TABS model, they didn't say, well, now whose taxes are we going to raise to pull this off? There was no tax increase. They didn't say, now where are we going to borrow these dollars? Do you think China will finance this? <laughs> it didn't happen. Congress has the power of the purse. And if the votes are there, the funding is there. And Congress knows this. So we have, you, you know, I'm sure people who are tuned in now know that yesterday the Senate moved forward on a 1.9, essentially trillion dollar uh, COVID relief package, which comes on the heels of all of the additional uh, of the previous legislation that has been passed, the CARES Act of 2.2 trillion, the 900 billion that was moved in December of last year. So the the answer is they know. They know that when they deem something a high enough priority, that all it takes to fund the spending are the votes. And if the votes are there, the money is there. And so they, uh, believe me, they know the spending comes first and everything else is secondary. And you know, there are ways that in the future, Congress could start writing legislation differently. They can write a bill that says, we are committed to doing two or $3 trillion of infrastructure spending. And we also want to raise a variety of taxes to offset that spending. They can do that, but they don't have to do that. So your question about inflation is important. I want to make sure to address it because Please. all of this spending that has taken place over the last year, every one of these relief bills has been pure spending. One set of instructions sent to the government's bank, the Federal Reserve, that said, go make these payments. Congress has authorized them. Your job is to make the payments on behalf of the U.S. Treasury. The Federal Reserve carries out those payments. How does it do that? Well, it marks the, changes the numbers in the appropriate bank accounts. It uses a computer keyboard and new digital dollars are born. Okay, that's what's happening. Now, the person asking the question is quite right to say, at what point would this become a problem, right? Then <laughs> we're sending $1,400 checks. Why not $14,000 checks? Why not $140,000? I mean, if if Congress can just conjure the money into existence, why be so stingy? Why not, you know, 100? And the answer, I hope, is obvious, which is that um, there is a limit. And at some point, you could put too much money into our hands and we could turn around and try to spend that money into an economy that doesn't have the productive capacity to produce the supply to meet all of that demand. And if you've got demand going way up here and supply struggling to keep up, well, the punishment for that is going to be inflation. I had a follow up to your point about like, you know, Congress knows this and the money's there if the votes are there. Why is it then that, and you talk a little bit about this in your book, we always seem to talk about the spending limits when it comes to things like education, healthcare, uh, and, and at times infrastructure, but 
rarely, like when I got sent to Afghanistan, no one was talking about how much it would cost. <laughs> you know, when we started talking about tax cuts or even like you said, the COVID stimulus, we didn't really talk about like t- increasing taxes for any of those. Like, what is it about certain issues that drive the spending debate uh, versus others? Like, I mean, in your time at Capitol Hill, like, why is it that like education, infrastructure, healthcare, uh, things like that just draw the scrutiny of uh, quote unquote fiscal conservatives? Well, because we have, we are ideologically different. We have different values. Um, We do not share the same core values when it comes to funding you know, I mean, I will say with respect to defense, this one is a special sort of category, right? Because there is widely bar, bar, bipartisan support for uh, the defense spending. And every year when the Defense Reauthorization Act comes up, it's like, you, you want, you're asking for $720 billion? Are you sure that's all you want? Because we feel like we want to give you $738 billion. <laughs> I mean, literally, the, the White House and the Pentagon will ask for a certain amount of money and 100 senators will walk through the door and say, I don't think it's enough. I think it should be I think it should be a bit more. And they'll just vote for even more to authorize even more than the White House had requested. And these this will pass with 89, 92 votes. So this is an a, this is a budget item that has broad bipartisan support. Um, so I don't want to suggest that there there are the ideological divisions. Forgive me, yes, of course. Yeah. Right? That's one of those where there's a whole lot of uh, of support from both parties. But yeah, obviously on on a variety of things, the two parties just fundamentally differ in terms of you know how many dollars they'd like to allocate or or take away from certain parts of the budget. They're they're different. So you know Congress has the power of the purse. They could double Pell Grants and provide more support for education and funding and so forth. But roughly half of the U.S. Senate doesn't want to do that, you know, and and we could go down the list with with other uh, categories of spending. So I want to get to something that I think is very important. And I know we actually had quite a few questions come in through the chat, but I just want to move on a little bit to what I believe is honestly the reason why I invited you on, which is this policy proposal of the federal job guarantee. Uh, this to me, just according to like my value system, just when I heard about it, it just clicked. Um, and I would like to just have you introduce it uh, for a minute. Would you mind telling, talking a little bit about what the federal job guarantee really is and why it might help us in today's day and age? So, sure. You know how you hear people talk about um, health care and some people say, well, we should have a public option with in healthcare, where the government will say, if you want your healthcare delivered this way, there's always a standing offer on the table. The job guarantee is a public option in the labor market. It is an offer of employment at a standard wage and benefit package. So if you want a job that pays you $15 an hour and comes with these benefits, and you can't find anything else anywhere in the economy, that suits you, you always have this at the ready, right? It's standing by, it's there for you. There's no time limit. You don't have to qualify. It is a guarantee. Anyone can have it at any moment in time. So it works. Um, It does so many different things. It is a really powerful way to stabilize the whole economy because 
you know, we're a capitalist economy. We are a market economy and market economies are dynamic. We go through periods of boom and then we go through periods of bust. We have recoveries and recessions and we're never going to eliminate the business cycle. We're always going to have our ups and downs. So a job guarantee is this program that's in place, ready and waiting to catch anyone who falls, you know, through the cracks in uh, as an employer, for whatever reason, finds that I, I can't make it with the workers I have. I'm going to shed workers, maybe for good reasons, maybe for not so good reasons. But if your employer lays you off or cuts your hours and you don't have the benefits and the, and the income that you need, there's something standing by that you always have access to. So in a recession, in a downturn, this is really important because instead of a millions and millions of people becoming unemployed and the longer and deeper the downturn, the longer people stay unemployed. You will hear people like um, Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, talk about scarring effects. You know, people get damaged through unemployment. You, it's not just, you know, gosh, I, I feel bad because I'm unemployed and I, I'm depressed and I can't support my family. There are a lot of social and economic costs that are associated with unemployment. The longer you're out of work, the deeper those costs become, right, in terms of you know, social and mental and economic, and you at some point become unemployable. Employers don't like to hire people who've been out of the um, out of work for a long period of time. Your work habits deteriorate and so forth. So this is a place that catches you immediately, reemploys you, keeps your skills maintained, upgrades skills, provides additional training, and uh, allows you to do something useful for the community. It's a federally funded program that's locally administered. So the community is saying, these are things of value to us. And people can contribute in ways, you know, big and small in their communities, get a living wage to do that. And as the economy recovers, they can return to work in the private sector. They can transition out of that program back into the private sector. And so it works like a shock absorber in your car. It, it makes the ride smoother so that when the economy goes through these inevitable ups and downs, you get a smoother ride. It's more humane. People have, you know, the opportunity to stay engaged, stay employed, have their income protected, their benefits secured. Um, and there are just a variety of benefits to the program. So is there not a point, though, like, let's say, uh that uh, we go through a downturn, we have a federal job guarantee, and we start recovering, and uh, we decide that our national values require a, a national education plan. We got to hire people to build the the, the parking lots and for the for the university of Pekin Park. Like, all the limitations that you addressed earlier. I mean, at some point, aren't we actually distorting the labor market? with governmental projects that actually makes it harder for small business to compete in the labor market? No, I mean, the whole point of this program is to maintain a ready, well, I shouldn't say the whole point. Uh, one of the features of this program is that you are maintaining a buffer stock, a ready pool of skilled employed people that the private sector can have anytime they're ready. All they have to do is pay a small premium to get them out of this program and into the private sector's hands. So what you're doing is you're maintaining liquidity of the labor market. You're keeping it liquid. 
so that it doesn't part of it doesn't rot out and become unuseful, right? The mm. long-term unemployed, where the labor scarring and so forth. Honestly, if you said, um, you know, come to me with the most pro sort of business uh, idea that you can come up with, I'd probably say, you know, Medicare for all and a job guarantee. Because with a, with a Medicare for all program, you're taking health care off of the books of private employers. And with a job guarantee, you're making sure that they can always have access to a, a pool of employed workers that they can dip into when they're ready so that it is easier to um, hire and ramp up production when they're ready to do that. So I think it's it benefits both the employee and the employer. And the purpose of the program is not to compete with the private sector. It's to enhance the functioning of the labor market and to smooth the business cycle. I like that. It's, it's, and, and I appreciate both the analogy of the shock absorber uh, as a means of like making the, the ride a little bit less bumpy during the hard times. I think that's a really an astute observation. Uh, we had a clarif clarifying question come in through the chat. That's okay. Will these be solely federal and state jobs? Or are we asking businesses to set aside positions as well? Uh, and I think that's kind of interesting in, the, in, in a context of, say, government contracting. Like, do those contractor jobs kind of count in this pool? Or are these actually like W-2 federal, state, and local employees? So they're not. Uh, the answer to the first part of your question is no, that you are not counting um, people hired by private employers. That That is not part of the federal job guarantee. In other words, we're not trying to subsidize private sector employment. If the private sector wants to hire workers, they ought to hire workers. And this is a program that, you know, provides an option for people that the private sector does not currently have a use for. Right? That Those are the people that the private sector has decided for itself it does not wish to hire. So the job guarantee takes those folks, employs them, keeps them employable, and releases them to the private sector when the private sector is ready to hire from that program. So as a taxpayer myself, I expect a lot out of my government services. And if these people aren't employable by the private sector, like what can they do for our government? What are some of these jobs looking for? Uh, what do they look like? Well, it, I, I mean, I think your imagination is the limit in terms of <laughs> right? there is so much work that needs to be done. You can drive through communities all over this country and see readily with your own eyes uh, probably dozens or hundreds of things that have been untended to, useful things that could be done that are, have just been neglected. So, you know, for people who want to look at this, there uh, I talk a little bit about it in my book. My book is not focused on the job guarantee, but I do answer the question, what kinds of jobs could people perform? Uh, I co-authored a report that was published by the Levy Economics Institute on uh, federal job guarantee, a path to full employment. People can look at that uh, for answers. And you can also look at a book that was published around the same time as mine uh, by an MMT economist named Pavlina Cherneva. And her book is all about the federal job guarantee. So she gets very deep into these questions about the kinds of jobs that would be performed. But broadly speaking, here's the answer. Think of the jobs as all being oriented in one way or another around building a care economy. 
caring for people, caring for communities, caring for the planet. Now, that's pretty big tent kind of stuff, right? That's a, you're casting a wide net. So what do, you, what do you do when you care for the community? Well, the point is that the federal government funds the program, but the local communities and the people living in them, they decide what is of value to them. The federal government doesn't know what people living in northeastern Oklahoma need. The people living in northeastern Oklahoma know what they value and what their unique needs are. So the jobs are supposed to come from the bottom up. People living in the communities, local governments in concert with state government officials, they approve the jobs uh, and then those jobs get performed. But, you know, think of care work, elder care, child care, community gardens, dealing with climate change, monitoring invasive species so that farmers are protected, you know, from uh, having, you know, their crops uh, invaded and, and crop losses. It's right. I mean, we could go and hours and hours just thinking about the kind of things that people in these programs could do. But the idea is that it's it is of value to the community. How do we know that? Because the community said so. The jobs are coming from members of the community themselves. So you're telling me that we can take the unemployed people of our society, the, the, the ones that the private sector has either chosen for whatever reason, economic or skill sets wise, have chosen not to hire, we can give them jobs that will actually help problems in our communities, dictated by the communities, and our the cost to our country is inflationary. We have, we, you know, it's about our value systems, and I can't think of anything more American in values than a job, right? The job is the vehicle of how you get your health care in this country, how you get your retirement in this country, it's how you pay taxes in this country. Like the job is kind of the kind of the building block of everything we are, why is this not done yet? Like, what are the obstacles? What 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 keeps this from becoming a reality? I mean, you, you know, you've got to have enough. It's the votes, right? Everything comes back to the votes fund the programs. And someone has to initiate the an idea like this. And actually, just within the last week or so, we had a member of Congress introduce a resolution for a federal job guarantee. And it was a pretty big deal, right? Uh, it was Congresswoman uh, Ayanna Presley who introduced a, uh, a resolution for a federal job guarantee. And she laid it out. And she said, this is what this is a direction I would like to move toward. So we, that is a resolution is not a, a spending bill that will come soon. Uh, and I know that they're working on that, but we'll see what kind of support uh, there is in the House for something like this. But, you know, with with FDR, you had an alphabet soup of job programs, but you had the Great Depression and you had millions and millions of people out of work. And desperation does breed creativity. Right. When you have a real mess on your hands, people can get pretty creative. And you say, I got millions of unemployed people, a lot of unemployed men. Uh, this isn't going to end well. We got to figure out something for these folks to do. And you had the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration. You had a National Youth Association, an NYA for jobs for young people. So, um, you know, people can can get creative when they when they feel like there is a, a crisis and a need. And um, but we shouldn't have to wait for that because you know every unemployed person is uh, is value is a value and wants a way in. Unemployment is by definition somebody who's looking for paid work. They want to contribute. They want to do something and they can't find a pathway in. 
So why not create a job? Lord knows there's enough uh, valuable work to be performed out there. And, and we ought to, you know, unemployment is costly. There, we can't think. You, you mentioned uh, the cost and inflation. And, you know, I mentioned that Levy report earlier. We modeled this. We said, what if the federal government actually had a job guarantee? How many people would come in? What would it cost? And what would be the macroeconomic effects of running a program like this? And so what we did was run this through a large scale macro uh, simulation and ask the question, tell us what would happen to a range of economic metrics, real GDP growth, inflation, interest rates, and so forth. And what we found is that the program would um, employ on average about 15 million people that you could finance this program federally, hire all the people who come through the door, give them something useful to do. The impact on inflation is minimal. I mean, minimal, not even a 1% jump in inflation. And the impact is very short term because you basically get a one-time increase in wages and prices and then it peters out. And so it is not inflationary. It doesn't lead to you know fiscal ruin or anything like that. We're talking about a government with a sovereign currency funding the program and you get all of the economic benefits. Of, of doing this. So, you know, we modeled it out and, um, and you get tremendous benefits from doing something like this. Oh man. I'm a, I mean, obviously everybody knows you, if you hopefully you've seen the rap song we wrote uh, for 99 pages on yeah. uh, federal job guarantee, we care a lot about this issue. It's, it's American, right? We want, like, this is not a handout. This is the American hand up. Like it, it just seems such, like such a common sense policy. I might be blinded by my idealism and my affection for your book, but uh, I'm so glad that you are, are promoting this issue. It's exceptionally exciting. That was our talk with Miss Stephanie Kelton. Check out her book, The Deficit Myth, wherever you get your books. It's a fantastic read. If you'd like to participate in one of our live interviews, subscribe to our LinkedIn page or our YouTube channel for updates. We'll be hosting Mr. Jimmy Sony on February 24th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern to discuss his newest release, The Founders, a story of the PayPal mafia that shaped Silicon Valley. It'll be a great conversation on technology, society, and the future of our economy. Hope to see you soon.